0: I'm Alexandra Joe, Content Manager at Partingstone, and you're listening to the Death Care Decoded Podcast. In this podcast, we explore trends in the death profession, uncovering valuable insights through conversations with industry thought leaders. Our mission is to bring forward-thinking education to death care professionals. This week, I have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Sarah Murphy death educator, certified thanatologist, and suicidologist with 15 years of scholarly, pedagogical, and professional experience in the field. She's a faculty member at the University of Rhode Island, where she's developed and taught over 50 interdisciplinary courses on theories of death, dying and bereavement, disenfranchised grief, and stigmatized means of death. In this conversation, we discuss the ins and outs of thanatology as a field and how thanatology overlaps with funeral care and the work of funeral professionals. You're jumping into a conversation with myself and Dr. Sarah Murphy.
1: Educators and funeral directors make up the smallest percentage of thanatologists, but they are present. Um, And yeah, it's a vibrant community. And so, if
0: they're not, you know, death care professionals or educate, like what do thanatologists typically do? Well, we cross a lot of professions. We've got psychiatrists,
1: um, we've got grief counselors chaplains, hospice workers, um, of course, also funeral directors, educators, mm-hmm. um, but basically it was the gamut, like transcendental meditation people who also work in deaf space and like wow. music thanatologists. And yeah, there's a lot, um, there's, there's a wide span. It started very clinical as an organization, a lot of MDs and licensed social workers and got a
0: lot more expansive in the last 20 years. Very cool. Yeah, Yeah. I've definitely heard of Cole Imperi, who is like a Thana botanist, which is, you know, pretty cool. And I something I'd never put together, but flowers are such an important part of funerals and they have symbolism around death and dying and art history as well, which is my background. So it's all of these different ways to think about death and dying and how someone could study and learn and help others with that. I guess that's really, really yeah. cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it's a very um, academically rigorous organization, mm-hmm. um, even for the people not attached to a university, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of, it's a very different look instead of in terms of professional education mm-hmm. through versus a lot of other kinds of organizations
0: um, mm-hmm. Yeah, That makes sense. This is great. I might just backtrack a little bit and get you to explain what is thanatology to someone who's not familiar with this field?
1: Absolutely. Uh, Thanatology is literally the study of death, dying, and bereavement um, coming from the Greek thanatos, which was the personification of death. Um, So the study of thanatology In a more, I guess, contained sense, we're really looking at the last 40 or 50 years as a discipline, although we know that across all kinds of disciplinary fields, people have grappled with issues of mortality and death and grief and afterlife. So for those of us who are thanatologists in the field now, uh, we work across a lot of different professions, but we're sort of unified in both the scholarly and practical applications of theories and practices for death, dying, and bereavement.
0: Okay, Well, wow. it could be a lot of different things. So, maybe just a little personal background. How did you get into this field of thanatology?
1: I am asked that a lot. I am asked that from complete strangers. <laughs> and I think even some of my family is still a little bewildered uh, because my background before all of this was in politics and in national government. I worked for Congress, I worked on national campaigns, and then I went back to college and I was kind of just in the right course at the right time. Um, I took this amazing English course, I was an English major, um, with an incredible professor, Jeffrey Berman, at the University at Albany in SUNY. Um, he is still there. I think he's the longest tenured faculty member in the SUNY system at this point. Wow. Uh, yeah. And he is not a thanatologist, but he was already very interested in like suicide and literature and literary representation of death. But his wife had died tragically of pancreatic cancer, and he turned to course planning and curriculum development to build this entire course called Love and Loss in Literature and Life. And I think it was intended for maybe 20 English majors, but there were, I think, 50 or 60 of us in the course. And in doing the course readings and um, reading some of the more theoretical texts that he brought in, I sort of dug into the footnotes and realized that this was a real field of study, that thanatology itself was this capacious, sort of hidden in plain sight uh, field of study. And I was bit by it really hard as is often the case and as is often the case now with my students. So when I went on and did my master's degree and then my doctorate at the University of Rhode Island, um, I I chose the programs I did because the department chairs were welcoming of me working towards certification as a thanatologist. At the same time, I was getting those advanced degrees in English And so everything I did sort of spoke to each other. I did my dissertation on suicide. Um, I did my master's thesis on um, grief and literature of the transcendentalists. And I think for many people who enter this field, it starts from a very personal space. And for me, I tell everyone that I started in a very academic space and then it became very personal when I walked into the classroom. Um, But in point of fact, and something I don't think I've ever talked about in interviews, is that when I took that first course with Jeff, um, I had just been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Oh, wow. It threw me through a loop. I was in my mid-20s. I was working as a neurological researcher kind of to pay my tuition, pay the bills. Mm -hmm. And my own boss diagnosed me with with MS. Um, And... Even though advancements for MS treatment have come so far, um, at the time, most of the books out were very much focused on disability and death. And I was terrified. I was terrified of losing uh, my autonomy, my agency, my mobility, um, of dying younger than I thought I would. And I really used his course to come to terms with this sort of non-death losses going on in real time in my own life. And then I think, in part, that also led to me also specializing, in addition to the other things I specialize in, in thanatology, on recognizing and responding to grief from non-death losses. So, in point of
0: fact, I guess I'm breaking it here. It
1: was both very personal and very academic for me.
0: Wow, that's such an incredible story. I, you know, I didn't know that about you and and your background people and it, do. <laughs> well, are you okay with me including it in the
1: podcast? Absolutely. My students okay, are there. I mean, I use these things as teaching moments. Great. Um, it's just not usually part of my package response, but obviously I'm comfortable with
0: you and, and comfortable with talking about it. Great. Yeah, that's, it resonates with me a lot because I surprise a lot of people being very open about kind of how I got into death care, being, losing my mom to suicide, at 18 being a freshman in college and i think some people are kind of taken aback that i'll just throw that out there about yeah that's that's how i got interested in the funeral profession because i that was my first experience with it and i would have done things differently and i think a lot of people you know it's death care is across the board whether you're a death doula or a funeral director or a thing like it can be a very personal thing to study or to practice every day but I don't know how often we actually share our personal stories with each other. So
1: Yeah, and that's important. And in thanatology, there's a whole subset of study on narratology, on the importance of telling those stories, both in a clinical setting, which is very Freudian, of course, um, to tell your stories, to work through grief. Um, and even in my classroom, student stories and students writing of personal essays are usually the most memorable course components they take away from them, because it's not just a validation of our losses and a processing of grief. It signals to other people, like in your example, right? In your experience, that it's okay to talk about this stuff, um, that we, we can't continue to be such a death avoidant culture, that the pain that is universal to people at the heart of human experience is the only subject that we shy away from talking about.
0: Yeah. That, that is such a huge irony to me. That's death is the only thing that's guaranteed to every single one of us. And it's what makes people most uncomfortable to talk about in my experience, you know, and since being at parting stone for two years now, I, you know, would go on like dates and stuff with people and they'd ask what you do. And I would love seeing the varied responses when I was like, I'm a death care professional. (laughs) everyone's like what is that what are you are you an embalmer like what are you doing no one that i've talked to outside the profession really realizes how varied the profession is how many different roles there are within death care that there even is thanatology a study of death dying and bereavement i think it's something a lot more people would be interested in if they even were aware of it
1: yeah i agree and i do think i i remember talking in um A webinar a few months into the pandemic for NFDA. um, I think that we might be in one of those shifts in terms of historical moment in talking about death. I think that may be something the COVID 19 pandemic is giving us Mm -hmm. um, is that because grief is suddenly front and center stage again and literally in the news, um, that as troubling. All of the restrictions around funeral service or being with a loved one when they're dying have been um, for people who are going through this pandemic. Being able to talk about loss, being able to talk about grief openly, we might be seeing in real time a shift there that gets us back to more historical approaches to grief and death in American culture than we've seen in the last 50 years. I always tell my students that. Right now, in our in our cultural moment over the last 50 years, death has been to us like sex was to the Victorians. Absolutely. Um, the only taboo subject, you know, everyone's doing it, but you can't talk about it. And that's that's not healthy when individuals are left to grieve in isolation, especially over complex losses or causes of death where they already might not have received the support they needed.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially in the context of the pandemic, because at this point, almost everyone I know has either had a close encounter with someone they love dying due to COVID-19 or has had someone die due to COVID-19. And we're having to deal with it in this huge way that I don't think we've really had to, at least in America as a culture, since maybe World War II or something. And so me personally, I think that the more we can do to keep that going and to get out of this death avoidant culture that we have cultivated for ourselves in the last hundred years, the better off we'll all be mental health wise. And just as a culture, we talked a little last time I had you on the podcast about, you know, some of the symptoms of that being the fetishization of death and pop culture. And even like in my personal story, when I was 18 and dealing with grief, having No friends and truly no college professors really that knew how to talk to me about that. And so just normalizing it as much as we can, I think, is great. And so the more people that are formally educating themselves about death with things like thanatology or even, you know, taking mortuary science classes at community college or something, I mean, that's, I think it's really great. And maybe that's kind of a segue into. I kind of do want to talk about the difference between what a thanatology degree or study program, how that's different than mortuary school, and then where the funeral director profession overlaps with thanatology.
1: Well, currently, I'm delighted um, to be teaching in the only current graduate program for thanatology at Marion University. And... Something I really appreciate there just a few weeks in is that students are coming in mostly as adults, right? Mostly a while out of their undergrad and are already working in very relevant fields. We have a lot of students who are already working either in a death care space or a grief care space who want the formalized education to put into praxis for their professional work in addition to having that theoretical and historical and scholarly grounding, um, which is great. And there is a lot of emphasis on um, the complex grief experience, which I think differs a lot from mortuary programs. I've talked to a lot of mortuary school faculty and graduates who will say to me, you know, there's so much we have to cover in just two years or just four years and there's such a dearth, I think, of those of us who have expertise in thanatology teaching in those spaces, that people come out um, as you know prepared funeral directors, ready to walk into the profession, having the business skills and the embalming skills and the practical skills, but maybe never having a course focusing on grief and bereavement theory, mm-hmm. um, or never having a course on communication practices with people who are grieving mm. and and I understand the limitations of any program in academia but because of that I hear from funeral directors every day many of whom I don't know who are emailing me identifying these as knowledge gaps and wishing that there had been a means for them to have that space filled um, with accurate and unbiased and grounded information Versus assumptions based on limited personal experience. Something that I love about being a certified thanatologist, and you know, being part of that community of people, is that we're all coming in from, in from these different professions. But there's such a shorthand between all of it, working in these different spaces because we have demonstrated. Our expertise in all of these fields, that we have the the oversight of our parent organization, the Association for Deaf Education and Counseling, ADEC, that we go through a rigorous process to sit an exam and to demonstrate both our professional experience and our professional education in these spaces so that where there's always going to be things that one of us knows that the other doesn't, that we continue all that through conversation too. And there's a real generosity to that to be able to say, well, this is what I do in a classroom. What do you do with your clients? Mm -hmm. And that there's a lot of opportunity as we are in this postmodern space now for understanding that there's no one size fits all approach to a dying person or to a grieving person. And I think for the funeral directors who are also thanatologists or working, whether they're certified or not, but working in that space, it allows them to bring more to the families they serve. And it allows them, I think, to have more self-satisfaction in the kind of work they're doing with clients.
0: Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. So I've recently been thinking a lot after interviewing Morgan Yarbrough at Recompose and Bree Smith at Return Home. I interviewed them separately for the podcast and both of them brought up how the 60-day minimum natural organic reduction process inherently causes families to have to slow down and be patient in that death planning and grieving process and how they've seen some really beautiful intentional rituals being created around that and a slower space for making decisions and from both of them comparing their perspectives as former funeral directors, how it was about high turnover rate, get these families in and out because they don't want to be in the funeral home, like quick, click, quick, make the sale, close the deal, and how it was refreshing to slow down grief. But then I also talked to Joelle Simone Anthony about this, who's a sacred grief practitioner, licensed funeral director. And she was like, just be careful thinking about grief in terms of being quantifiable because every single family is going to need something different. Some family might need that quick turnover because it's very painful for them to sit and experience this drawn out process. Other families, when a death is sudden or unexpected, maybe do need some more time to come to terms with what's happened. And in that talk, she was really clear about how funeral directors are not grief counselors and they're not grief practitioners. And as someone who's not a funeral director, that kind of set a light bulb off in my brain about how, well, maybe funeral directors should have more exposure to grief training and grief support, not requiring any kind of certification, but one course maybe, or an elective or an extra training or infield shadowing of someone who is a grief counselor. I think it would be really helpful for these professionals who deal with bereaved families every single day, take on that emotional burden, become compassion fatigued, burned out, don't know how to deal with what to do and how to help families best themselves, and are only coming at it kind of from a business perspective. I think having more experience and more exposure to the field of thanatology clearly would be beneficial to a lot of people. So, so all of that makes a lot of sense to me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree with that. And again, knowing the constraints of curriculum, they probably wouldn't be able to take extensive coursework in, in grief theory, et cetera. But the amount of times I hear from funeral directors. In this sort of space of desperation where they are emotionally invested, um, where they have the best of intentions with a family or a client, but don't have the tools in the toolbox for how to empathically respond to them because no one gave them those tools. I, I hear from people like that almost every day. And yeah, that does signal to me that having some education in that space while remembering, no, you're not a counselor, but you do have both an opportunity and a responsibility to respond helpfully to someone who is in grief and it never hurts to pick up these tools from other professions. Again, that's sort of what we do in thanatology. I've picked up things I use in the classroom from people who are clinicians and I'm not a clinician and I will tell my students, I'm not a counselor. Please remember that. But there are a lot of proxies that could be helpful for them. Like doing grief journaling, et cetera. Um, My students are currently meditating every day this week, and that's not something they would normally be doing, but I think it's going to be beneficial to them. So I think it would be great to expose and give the opportunity to more funeral directors and mortuary students um, to get this kind of practical, but scholarly grounded education in their toolbox. They don't need to know who all the leaders in the field are going back a hundred years in grief theory, but even a few hours of what someone like I or someone else who is a thanatologist working also in a death space can distill for them and say, here are some takeaways that would be helpful for you might reduce a lot of that anxiety of going to bed and thinking, did I do the best I could do for this family?
0: Absolutely. And so I guess then my next question is if there are funeral directors who are listening to this episode and are interested in pursuing something like this extracurricularly where do you suggest they look first you know is it doing a full on program are there resources out there on the thanatology side of things what what are your recommendations sure well i would say they would also they would always be
1: welcome to look into the offerings being given by the association for death education and counseling all of which would be by thanatologists whether it's coming to the conference every year or um, as so many organizations are checking out online webinars for professional education that are given over the years. I myself, I don't know how many of us there are. I haven't looked. I think there might only be a couple of us who are thanatologists also working a lot with professional education for funeral directors. So I do workshops on empathic communication for grieving families I do workshops on disenfranchised grief and alleviating the risks for it, and I also do one-on-one consulting for funeral homes as needed, so they're also welcome to call me or email me, of course, but, you know, I think just as I kind of getting into the funeral space over the last several years, just by happy accident, really, have learned a lot from funeral directors and have been able to bring that back to what I do so that I can develop education programs for them that are very tailored to the, the scope of their work, I think it would benefit them to learn from those of us who spent way too many years in graduate school studying.
0: <laughs> I know about that. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. That's awesome. And so if someone is interested in a workshop with you, how would you like for them to get in touch with you?
1: Um, they're welcome to email me. Okay. Uh, Sarah Murphy, deaf educator at gmail.com. Okay. I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm pretty easy to find. Once you type in Sarah Murphy and thanatology, it's just me. So, cool. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty special in today's Google age. <laughs> I know, especially with a name like Sarah Murphy, because there was a Sarah Murphy who was a massive patron of the arts in the 1920s mm-hmm. um, and was friends with like Fitzgerald and Hemingway, and they had a house in Rhode Island. So if you just put in my name in Rhode Island, you will get Sarah and Gerald Murphy from the 19th.
0: <laughs> wow, that's wow. so cool. <laughs> that's awesome. I think there are a lot of Alexandra Joes out there that are way higher than me on Google, but <laughs> but now Alexandra Joe come a death. Oh, maybe maybe just me. I'll have to go Google myself after this talk. (laughs) Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. It's always such a pleasure to have you. Oh, absolute
1: pleasure to be here. This production is brought to you by Parting Stone, who wants to remind you that when your families choose cremation, they don't have to receive
0: cremated remains.